It's a great privilege and an honor to introduce to you our next speaker, Jonathan Mort, who many of you uh, would have worked with and, and certainly would know. Jonathan is a pensions lawyer and is the director of the specialist pension law firm Jonathan Mort Incorporated in Cape Town, which he founded on the 1st of March of 2009. He was previously a director of Edward Nathan Sonnenbergs and its predecessor, Edward Nathan. Jonathan's practice covers all aspects of the law relating to retirement funds, retirement funds, and he provides legal advice on pension fund issues not only in South Africa, but also in Botswana, Namibia, Lesotho, Swaziland, and Zambia. He has extensive experience in acting as an independent trustee on pension funds, and has a special interest in fund governance, having advised the FSB as well as National Treasury with regulatory reform in the pension funds industry. He's a past president of the Pension Lawyers Association, serves on the executive of the International Pension and Employee Benefits Lawyers Association, or IPEBLA, and as a member of ASSA's disciplinary committee, and is the director editor of IPEBLA's comparative survey of pension law issues. He has spoken at many local and international pension conferences, and it's really and indeed a pleasure and privilege to have him um, present on ours. Um, Jonathan will be talking about um, some recent uh, pension fund adjudicator rulings um, and provide us with some high-level takeaways, certainly uh, takeaways that would affect us all uh, as practitioners in the industry. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Costa. It's really good to be here with you. Um, I probably work more with um, my actuarial colleagues and friends than other lawyers, so I do feel at home. I don't have any um, actuary and lawyer jokes to give you, but um, at least I hope you'll find some of these things that I have to deal with uh, somewhat amusing. So, um, the, uh, my talk isn't just around the adjudicator cases. There's some FSB appeal court cases. There are also some high court and supreme court of appeal cases. And these are the themes that I want to cover. I've, I've tried not to include things uh, which are specifically in the retail space. Um, I want to deal mainly with things that are, deal with occupational issues um, because I think those are the ones that most of you would be involved in. Um, some of these are pure legal issues, like the prescription one and the divorce orders and so on, but they will affect all of you because I know that all of you are much closer to the issues that affect fund boards than um, most of the other people. So there's prescription, divorce orders, DBDC conversion, union fund issues, withdrawal benefits, administrator issues, pension increases, and then I do want to spend some time on a particular matter that I've been involved in, the Telemat Pension Fund, which has had a number of um, adjudicator cases, an FSB appeal board case, high court case, and now this matter's gone to the Supreme Court of Appeal and it's rich with all sorts of actuarial issues which are of considerable significance for all of you and us lawyers too. So the first one I'm going to deal with is the purely legal one of prescription. And this is uh, to, deal with, uh, to do with this poor chap, Mr. Matabela, who was at the uh, SA post office. He was a manager of a, post, uh, a particular branch of a post office and he was acting manager of another branch of a post office. And he was obviously a bit too stretched, and what happened was somebody sent, a, well, a bank sent a credit card for collection through the post, and the proper process wasn't followed. So the wrong person picked it up, Julie went and spent about 75,000 rands on it, and 
he was held to be liable for this negligent and went through a disciplinary process, dismissed, and, um, and of course, he then uh, he, he, there was a deduction made from his pension, um, uh, as you know, in terms of Section 37D. His pension was paid in March 2010. His dismissal, I think, took place around 20, 2008. Over that period, he kept on asking, why is this, this discrepancy about my, my um, salary, my pension? It was only around October 2013 that he was, he was actually formally given a letter for the first time. This is why we've deducted most of the money. And um, he sued because it was the amount they deducted was actually double the amount of the loss on the credit card. And the Prescription Act says, the debt is only due when the creditor has knowledge of the debtor and of facts from which the debt arises. And he said, I never knew. The court said, that's too bad because there is a very important proviso. Provided that the creditor is deemed to have knowledge if it could have acquired it by exercising reasonable care. And um, I just want to read this part to you because it, it, it says, I mean, it's, it's, you know, we all are supposed to know the law and you have to feel sorry because many lawyers don't know the law either. <laughs> but what was said here was, they quoted a, uh, a case which said, the court has emphasized that the time begins to run against the creditor when it has the minimum facts that are necessary to institute action. The running of prescription is not postponed until a creditor becomes aware of the full extent of its legal rights, nor until the creditor's evidence that, evidence that would enable it to pursue a case comfortably. So the moment you know you've got a case, you have to start. You don't wait for everything to make it a cast iron case. And as the judge said in the beginning of this case, sad is the day when a party with a watertight case comes to court and he is stopped in his tracks by a sudden death due to a fatal blow from a watertight defense of prescription. So that is prescription. Um, one thing all lawyers like to jump into uh, as soon as they get a case, is it a good, has, does prescription apply? The next thing is are these old chestnuts of divorce orders. Now they never seem to stop. Um, endless permutations of issues around divorce orders. The first one is an adjudicator case. Um, and the sad thing about this was the, there was a, the, the, you know, you have to be exactly correct in your description of the pension fund in the divorce order. So the parties were divorced whilst the husband was a member of the risk care fund, then transferred to the AF retirement fund, and then again to the funds at work fund. So every time they, this husband transferred, they, they got a variation of the divorce order to reflect that. Um, by the time they got to funds at work, the divorce order reflected that he was at funds at work, but the latest order did not reflect that when he got divorced, he was actually at Risicare. Now, for a reason I must admit, I said, lawyers don't understand, and there's some things I don't understand, and this is what I don't understand. The adjudicator held that the divorce order was still deficient, 
notwithstanding that funds at work was mentioned by name properly, because um, Risicare, according to the adjudicator, was supposed to have been mentioned. Um, anyway, that's, that's, a, that's one just for you to remember. The next one is this one of, of um, Pulsar uh, versus the Sunlum Staff Retirement uh, uh, Umbrella Pension Fund. And this deals with the issue of Islamic marriages. Now, Islamic marriages have been a problem for divorce orders because they are not um, marriages uh, to which the Divorce Act applies. And Section 37D, therefore, didn't apply to it technically in the past. Um, what these, this couple did very wisely, though, was they separated, divorced by Islamic law, because the marriage was only by Islamic law, and then they had their settlement agreement made in order of court. In that settlement agreement, they described exactly correctly how the divorce, the pension interest of the husband was to be split, as required in terms of the Pension Funds Act, but still the fund didn't want to pay it out because the fund said that it, it isn't, um, govern, uh, because it's not a divorce in terms of the Divorce Act, it doesn't apply. The adjudicator held that, notwithstanding that it wasn't a divorce in terms of the Divorce Act, there is a there's another provision in Section 37D3 um, which says that the fund may deduct from the benefit any amount assigned from such benefit to a non-member spouse in terms of a decree under Section 78 of the Divorce Act or in terms of any order made by a court in respect of the division of the marriage under Islamic law. So I, I think this is, abs of course, it's absolutely correct. That's why this bit in bold was put in, in terms of the amendments made to the Pension Funds Act last year. The, the point about the Divorce Act is it's covered, as you can see from this, under 37D4, and that's really an amplification of what's stated here. So, so that um, hopefully will put that issue to rest, although I understand that... Um, people in the industry still feel it necessary that there should be some changes made. The next one, okay, now this is very interesting. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Pago were both members of the Sentinel Fund and they, they Mr. Pago had been married before and his divorce order had been recorded against his pension interest it's not explained why that pension interest hadn't been paid out. Maybe there was a reason for it. But the, they, so they were both members of, of the Sentinel Fund, and his, the, the divorce order in respect of him said that 50% of his pension interest from the date of marriage had to be split, and in respect of her said that 50% of her pension interest from the date of inception of membership. And the fund made a mistake and split his like hers. So they split his half from the date of inception of membership. So he went to the adjudicator and said, this is wrong. And the adjudicator, in her wisdom, said, ah, but this is completely wrong anyway. You haven't raised it as an argument, but I'm raising it as an argument that, that the, 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 the pension descript the description doesn't comply with the Pension Funds Act. 
Therefore, there shouldn't be any deduction from the husband's pension interest. And, and of course, he was delighted with, it, with that. But when the wife then approached the High Court, he joined in as well and opposed the wife doing this, notwithstanding that he'd gone to the adjudicator before to get it corrected. And the adjudicator said, I mean, the High Court said, um, this is complete nonsense. The, there's nothing wrong with the way it's been described in the divorce order. It is enforceable. It must be enforceable. And he set aside the determination. What, and this is the kind of thing we lawyers like to read about in, in court cases, because the, the judge was rather disparaging of the adjudicator. Um, so, so um, the, the, adjudicator, the pension fund adjudicator cannot reformulate the complaint and cannot declare a high court order unenforceable. That is trite law. I've been referred to a number of authorities in this regard, and it is trite law that a judgment of any court stands until it is set aside by a court of higher jurisdiction or varied by application of any of the parties involved in the matter. The adjudicator states that she on many occasions ignored court orders. That she cannot do. <laughs> a court order stands and she was bound thereby. The fact that she deemed it to be wrong is totally irrelevant. She was bound by the court order. So anyway, that was, um, <laughs> that, that was the kind of thing I'm afraid we do find in these adjudicator things. And the husband, for his efforts, was made to pay the costs of this high court application. So there was some sort of justice in the end. Um, then there's, I've got just one on a DBDC conversion. And it's, it's, it, it's always nice to see when when a complaint is actually dismissed because it shows that the fund actually did the thing correctly. And um, I mean, often they don't do things correctly, but it shows you when you do things correctly how important it is to go about it you know, in, in the right way. So what happened here was um, the Cape Joint Retirement Fund underwent a voluntary DBDC conversion. It was planned for the 1st of May 2014 and um, the member elected a DC conversion and then he retired on the 30th of June 2014. But the conversion was actually delayed until the 1st of August 2014 because it was dependent on the passing and or registration of a rule amendment before the registrar, which only took place on the 25th of July. So the member had to be retired on a DB basis with none of the DC enhancement that you would expect. And um, the member understandably said he would never have retired had he known of the delay, and you know uh, he would have just delayed it. The adjudicator found, though, that the rules at the time of the retirement applied, so it's irrelevant what he, you know, you can only retire in terms of the rules which are current. The fund had done the communication in an exemplary fashion. Nothing could be criticised. The member didn't dispute any of the communication he received. In fact, they showed that he'd actually attended communication sessions. They showed that the, the, he was told that all of this was dependent on the passing of a rule amendment, which was apparently very complex. Um, and so the complaint was dismissed. So just when you do these conversions, you do need to take a lot of care around those, that communication.
So union funds. There's always a lot of action with union funds because out there, as some of you may know, it can be a bit like the Wild West. Um, so in this, in this particular matter, um, Impact, uh, a company, I'm not quite sure what they do, but they, they were participated in this um, Papawu National Provident Fund and they apparently participated in two other funds as well. And these people, um, Lefatsa and the CINPF, which is obviously a rival um, trade union fund, was, they complained to the adjudicator because these members wanted to be transferred to the CINPF. Now that was not a fund in which this employer participated and the employment contract allowed the members to participate in one of the three funds which did not include CINPF, as I said. But the rules of the Papawu Fund did say you could transfer to another provident fund if there was an indication by members within a plant. Now this was not very well drafted and um, the big issue was what does this actually mean and does it mean you can go to any provident fund? And the adjudicator held that you had to interpret the rules in the context of the employment contract and thus the members could only transfer to one of those um, three funds because otherwise you would then have employees transferring to any number of types of, of, of provident funds um, and, and it simply wouldn't be viable for, for the employment, uh, for the employer rather. The CIMPF was actually also censured and I think reported to the FSB for participating in something which uh, was considered by the adjudicator to be quite disruptive to the whole uh, retirement fund environment. Then the Samu National Provident Fund versus the city of Cape Town. Um, so this, is the sum, the, this fund actually had a provision saying you could increase the contribution rates for the members and the employers, provided that had been agreed by the union and the employer. So notwithstanding that there wasn't any such agreement, uh, the fund went ahead and just retrospectively increased the employer contributions and the member contributions actually uh, in 2009 with effect from 2007. So they, and then they came along in 2014 lodged an adjudicated complaint saying, well, we haven't received those increased contributions and we want those increased contributions plus interest at a prescribed rate plus fund return. And yes, I know. So, 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 I mean, the, the claim went into the, into the millions, very significant. And the city said, well, the first thing is, there wasn't that agreement that you are required to have in terms of your own rules. So, you know, the, the rule wasn't validly passed. The second thing is, you only lodged your complaint with the adjudicator 2014. That means for the th Every, your claim is only valid for, for the three years preceding if there is a claim and everything prior to 2011 is then prescribed. And you can't have prescribed interest plus the fund return. You can only have the interest on the arrear contributions if they are payable. And in addition, they want, oh, they're only liable in respect of members in service, 
because there is quite a strong argument that the minimum individual reserve provisions of the Act only make the fund liable for current members, contributions in respect of current members, not in respect of members who've left. And then you need more... The, the, the city wanted more information to see if the Induplum rule applied. The Induplum rule, I'm sure you know what it means, but it means the interest can't exceed the capital of the... Of, um, of the, of the amount claimed. The adjudicator, again formulating their own arguments in the matter, apparently, said prescription did not apply because members did not know that contributions were not paid. Now this, I mean, it is quite an extraordinary argument because, because you know, the, the fund doesn't act as an agent. The fund is its own person in its own right. Then the adjudicator said, according to a, a Supreme Court of Appeal case of Joint Municipal Pension Fund versus Scrobler, you couldn't lodge a complaint based on an invalidly passed rule. Therefore, the adjudicator said, you can't have a defense based on an invalidly passed rule. I, I mean, that doesn't hold any sort of, I don't understand that at all. Um, the fund wasn't interested, it couldn't get both interest and fund return, and it would get interest to compensate for no fund return, and there was no ruling on the Induplum rule issue. So apparently that's being appealed in the High Court, and um, we'll know sometime when that happens. So on to withdrawal benefits. Um, oh, this is, yeah, this is quite a... Uh, interesting one. This chap was employed from 1st of April 2006 to 22 June 2013 and <clears throat> the rules and the benefit statements always said that the withdrawal benefit was contributions plus fund return times three. <laughs> so what he did was he withdrew but the rules were amended retrospectively to say that the factor was 1.5, not 3. The rules were, uh, this was approved by the FSB a year later, and you can see he withdrew on, in August 2013, and <clears throat> um, more than about six months, more than six months later, he, the, the rule was approved, but with retrospective effect. He said he wasn't told of the rule amendment, he wouldn't have resigned if he knew, it's a, bit, it's a bit, in a sense, it's a bit like that other one, isn't it? Except this is very different. The adjudicator held that the rules in operation applied at the time that the resignation applied. I mean, that must be so. It must be that the rules at the time you resign, even if there is something that's retrospective, and even if your resignation is only processed after the rule amendment is approved, at the time you, can, you carry out that legal act, that is what fixes your right to the benefit. Um, and you can't retrospectively do something anyway which, which reduces your rights. So they required the recalculation of the benefit to be paid plus 15%, 15.5% from February 2014. Now the 15.5% the is the prescribed rate of interest act and obviously I mean, there is a bit of a problem with imposing that kind of rate on a fund where the fund isn't getting that, that kind of fund return. 
And the question I have is, why, you know, why penalise the fund, effectively the other members, when it's either the trustees or the administrator who, who, who've, who've, who've not carried out their job properly? And, I mean, it was, that is exacerbated in this one particular... If you... Yeah, just let me read this. Um, because, oops, sorry, the adjudicator went, was a bit fed up with this case. She said, this tribunal must point out that it has to date issued several determinations in terms of which it found that this rule amendment cannot be applied to benefits which accrued before its approval and registration by the registrar. Nevertheless, it continues to apply this rule amendment to benefits which accrued before its approval and registration. So, so the reason you've got this funny date of 27 February 2014 is that that is the date when the adjudicator first made a determination on this particular issue. So, so it may be that this chap only... He, he's going to get his benefit at, the, at that correct rate, but he's going to get extra interest from this odd date. So... Um, Anyway, as I say, it's, uh, it, I wonder if it would have been more effective um, if they'd held somebody personally liable for that. Um, next one is around the um, dynamique, those trouble dynamique funds. And we've just, I've just mentioned one about uh, communication. And this is uh, another one which deals with communication. It was a complaint about lack of communication. So in this particular situation, the employer ceased participation at the end of July 2013, commenced participation in another fund from August that year. Section 14 transfer was delayed because of a data rebuild. The funder communicated reasons for the delay, but it had only been sent to the broker, not to the employer or the members. And the adjudicator found that by forwarding the benefit statements to the broker, the board had failed in their duties in terms of Section 7DC. And that's a provision which says you have an, a, a communication obligation in the Act. And the adjudicator said it's not good enough just to send it to the broker. You must make sure it gets, at the very least, to the employer. So we've been talking a lot about um, umbrella funds and so on. And this really is quite a big message because I think you know, brokers do sell their services for, for doing all of this and managing the communication. But I'm not sure who checks up that they actually do what they're supposed to be doing. Then prices candles. Um, this is a very interesting one. Um, there was an employee at Aon, which was the administrator of this fund, and committed fraud in respect of surplus payments. And they found that approximately 1.1 million had disappeared because of this chip. Part of it was clearly whilst he was in employment, and part of it was uh, they weren't able exactly to ascertain whether it was whilst he was in employment, but certainly he must have done something after he left because he seems to have taken stuff with him. The funds insurer accepted liability for the greater part and repudiated the balance. So the funds said, well, look, you know, we're actually not sure why we should even be asking our insurer for this. We're going to sue Aon for the whole lot. Aon then relied on the indemnity in its administration agreement, saying uh, the, uh, it only covered losses attributed 
during a person's employment, i.e. not for fraud by others. And the adjudicator said, no, no, that, you, you know, that's not going to wash with me because even if it wasn't, um, the, the initiator wasn't uh, still in employment, the fact that you weren't keeping an eye, trying to prevent fraud um, is enough for me to hold you liable. And I mean, this is um, what the adjudicator said. The respondent, that's Aon, never picked up that it was paying multiple surplus claims to the same bank account into which he pa they paid this, this fraudulent employee's salary while he was employed with the respondent, was possibly paying surplus claims to pay claimants who were never members of the complainant, and was employing this chap without a valid ID. So I think the adjudicator then said, you know, it's nothing, you can say what you like, I don't accept it, and um, as far as I'm concerned, you're liable. The adjudicator also raised another argument um, about estoppel that uh, and said that Aon was liable, so eventually holding Aon liable for the whole amount plus, plus this interest. So certainly the adjudicator does take a strong line with administrators. Then moving on to the pension increase policy, um, this is just really quite a simple issue. Um, the complainant said there was no pension increase, blaming on the uh, employer taking a contribution holiday in, in the late 80s and early 90s. The, the pension increase policy was a typical one of 75% um, of CPI if affordable, and there was no pension increase in 2011. The employer owed a balance of cost obligation, but was able to show that it had taken, at all the times that it had taken the contribution holiday, the fund had been in surplus, and so the complaint was dismissed. Now, before I deal with Telumat, there are two other cases that I just want to touch on and I'm, they will be in the slides. Um, I haven't got them here because I was looking at them earlier today. The, the first one is quite an important one, British American Tobacco Pension Fund um, versus the FSB Appeal Board. And this is heard in the High Court. Um, just came out at the end of May this year. Uh, or is that this year? Anyway, the what... The issue here was that the, the pension fund had um, had a surplus from its Section 15B surplus apportionment, allocated surplus um, to both the members and the employer, and the employer surplus was still naturally sitting in the employer surplus account. The members surplus was still, even though it had indicated how it was going to split it amongst the pensioners, actives, and former members. Um, it was still sitting in the member surplus account. They then did another valuation and the fund was in deficit. And the big issue was, well, they were going to tap both surplus accounts proportionately according to 15H, as 15H actually says. And the registrar wasn't happy with that because um, the registrar said you should, when you awarded that money to the members, it should have just gone straight through. You knew the purpose to which it was intended, for which it was intended, and it was, and it shouldn't have been just sitting there doing nothing. Um, the court held, no, that's not correct. For whatever reason, it was still sitting there. The provisions of 15H are peremptory, and it must actually be, um, it must actually be debited proportionately. 
The other one has to do with the Supreme Court of Appeal matter, um, City of Johannesburg versus uh, the Sala Pension Fund, Imatu Pension Fund, and so on. And the important case here was that um, the, the city, I think if I've got this correct, the city disputed that um, uh, these funds were entitled to act on behalf of members because this related to the issue of the um, city ceasing its participation in those two funds and deciding to participate in new funds and um, said, well, you can't act on behalf of those people, you, you, your members, you need to join them as separate people. And the funds disputed that. So it went all the way to the Supreme Court of Appeal for that. And the Supreme Court of Appeal importantly said, boards of trustees do not represent members. They represent the fund. And there's a very important distinction. And that's quite right, because the fiduciary duty is only in respect of accrued service. This related to a future employment arrangement um, that the employer was going to participate in, in a different fund. So if the members were unhappy with that, it was for the members to take it up, not for the board of trustees. So moving on then to my last issue, which is Telumat Pension Fund. Um, as I said, there have been adjudicator cases and um, FSB Appeal Board and a High Court case on this one particular saga. It's a DB fund with only pensioners, pension increase policy, 75% of CPI for affordable, but some pensioners enjoyed a 3% minimum pension increase guarantee. Those ones we call the, the, called the PSA pensioners. But then the fund said, to make sure there's an equal pension increase over time, the other pensioners get a clawback uh, when the fund is in a position to do that. Um, at the 2006 valuation date, it had a surplus of 242 million. Um, that included the solvency reserve, and there was no additional liability in that for those PSA pensioners and their pension guarantee. The same valuation basis as in 2003, when they had a nil, where they had no surplus. So they decided, well, let's just um, capture all the surplus, uh, crystallise it, and we'll outsource the pensioners and um, give something to the employers. And so they gave 56% of that to the pensioners and 44% to the <coughs> employer. And the pensioners were entitled, offered, given an option of receiving their surplus through the choice of an annuity. And they had to choose either a 32% enhancement of a with profit annuity or a 26 enhancement with a with profit annuity plus that 3% guarantee if they still wanted to hold on to it or a guaranteed inflationary increase or a living annuity above a certain amount. There was an objection to the surplus apportionment resolved by arbitration and, the, and um, in favour of the fund, which upheld the way the surplus was distributed. The rules reflected all of this. The insourcing was undertaken, so they bought the annuity policy according to what the pensioners elected in terms of investment powers, which were not in dispute, and the annuities were purchased in, over April to August 2010. Then there was a complaint to the adjudicator that the annuities did not correspond with the reasonable benefit expectations of the pensioners because 
they had been receiving 100% pension increases over the previous few years, and they said, you should have valued our liabilities according to 100% guaranteed um, pension increases because that's what we've come to expect. So it wasn't the pension increase policy that should have determined how you valued it, but our expectation of what, of, informed by what we've been receiving in the past. The, um, and it should be noted just this particular point that the insourcing was funded by both the pensioner assets and the member surplus account and the pensioners started receiving immediately the increases paid according to their choice. So the adjudicator dismissed that, said, no, no, the, the pension increase policy is what determines the liability. Then there was another complaint to the adjudicator because, as you can expect, a member who chose the 32% with profit was one of those who enjoyed the 3% guarantee. And as would, you could expect, which happens when things go wrong, they didn't give an increase above 3%. So he complained and said, I was promised a 3% guarantee increase and I didn't get it. And the adjudicator again dismissed that saying, you can't accept the benefit of an enhancement with strings and then claim, you know, you want it without strings. So then they did the section 14, transferred the insource annuities to pensioners and then an appeal was lodged with the FSPL board. The appeal board argument ran like this. The fund's true liability was not based on the pension increase policy, but on the history of pension increases. Therefore, using the member surplus account to fund the in-source annuity was unlawful. And furthermore, as the fund would be liquidated in the future, it should have used the employer surplus account according to section 15I, because you should use the liquidation provisions even though this is a transfer, because um, you know the fund is going to be liquidated. So you can see how seductive the whole argument is, and, um, and it, on top of that, there should have been a, an additional liability in the valuation for the 3% guarantee. So you can see also that if the first point about the pension increase doesn't w work, then the other things don't work either. But the FSB said that the 3% guarantee should have had an additional liability attributed to it. That's its own separate issue. Annuity choices couldn't be foisted on members, even though they were given a choice. And, and nobody complained about the choice. And the fund could not base, but the fund could not base its liability on the pension increase history. It had to use the pension increase policy. So even though the building blocks of the appeal weren't kind of followed, this is what the FSB Appeal Board said. And the Appeal Board said that you had to apply Section 15I, so the pensioner liability had to be met from the member surplus account and the employer surplus account proportionately. So, I mean, the, the two big problems from, I think, from your actuarial aspect is this. Firstly, around this 3% guarantee, the reason it had never been given a value was because the actuary said the possibility of never meeting a 3% increase is so remote as not to be considered a probability and therefore I'm not going to value it. And in any event, there's solvency reserve which would cover it if it, in the unlikely event it did arise. Um, the rules actually provided that it only was to be invoked every alternate year, so it wasn't a permanent guarantee. And how do you value the clawback? 
in relation to that, because aren't they both the same thing? So the, the problem with the FSB Appeal Board, you know, it, it, it didn't seem to appreciate that. And then the annuity choices, um, so they weren't actually a proper replication of benefits. Under Section 15I, the problem was that it's only applied if there were insufficient assets to meet the pension liability, but there were sufficient assets for that. And there is a discretion in Section 15I. And it implies Section 14 is less beneficial for members than liquidation. And for the registrar, this is a particularly problematic judgment because how do you deal with Section 14 transfers if there's a possibility that you're going to liquidate afterwards? And most, most of these conversions, um, you know, closing down of DB funds, take place on the basis that you're trying to clear it out on an optimal basis before the liquidator because the board of trustees is going to put in more effort than the liquidator will. So um, it went to the High Court and the appeal was dismissed. It, it wasn't a very helpful judgment and it's currently on appeal to the SCA. So that does have a number of um, quite important issues which we hope will, will be resolved. Um, and that is what I have to tell you at Jonathan, thanks very much. That was really insightful. On behalf of us all here today, um, I'd really like to thank you for your effort in putting your presentation together. Um, it was certainly very insightful and very useful, and we thank you for the invaluable time that you gave us, Jonathan. So thanks very much. Appreciate it.